Welcome back to the Funding University podcast. I am your host, Seth Block. On today's podcast, I am posting a recording of my presentation at the Compliance Solutions Conference in Orlando, Florida last month. My talk was on mergers and acquisitions. I started off discussing how the effects of rising interest rates, inflation, and an impending recession are affecting businesses today. Later, I got into the process, which includes what to have in place before you try to acquire a company, getting ready for an acquisition, steps to fund the new venture, and different kinds of funding sources. I wrapped up talking about which types of funding work best in specific circumstances. So with that, let's get started. Okay, good morning. As Derek mentioned, my name is Seth Block. I am the Executive Vice President for Thermo Credit. We are an independent lender that focuses exclusively on the communications and technology industries. I am also the founding member and president of the Funding University, uh, which has a podcast, and am one of the founding members of FundingStrategies.net. I mention this because that group does webinars, and our webinar this month is on the impact of interest rates, which is something we're actually going to talk about uh, quite a bit today. So let's get into it. What we will discuss today are what is driving mergers and acquisitions, things to do before you try to acquire a company, getting ready to do the acquisition, getting ready to fund the acquisition, and possible funding sources. So what is driving mergers and acquisitions today? Well, there are several things. Um, the first one and probably the most important one are rising interest rates, which is also having an impact on raising capital. We are also dealing with fluctuating markets and there's uncertainty with the Fed, which is causing issues in the marketplace. So when we talk about rising interest rates, uh, one thing I'd like to kind of go through with you all a little bit is what has happened to the overnight rate that banks use to lend to each other. Uh, and I'll get into this in a little bit of detail and explain to you why it matters. First of all, I want to talk about LIBOR, which is the London Interbank Overnight Rate. And that is the rate that has uh, kind of dictated what banks lend to each other for the last 50 years. That is now being phased out. As a matter of fact, in the United States, it will be phased out entirely by June of 2023. And it's being replaced by the standard overnight finance rate. And this is called or referred to as SOFR. And I want to show you something about SOFR. Let's look at the rise in interest rates with SOFR over the last year. If you go back and you look at January 2022 uh, SOFR rates, they were at 0 0.05. And when I say 0 0.05, I don't mean half a percent. I mean 0.05%, which is essentially zero. 
Those rates started inching up in 2022, and by June, they were up to a point. And then they took off. And by the end of December, beginning of January 2023, they were at 4.5%. Today, they're right around 46 Why do we care? Well, because SOFR, uh, in normal times, and, and this was the same with LIBOR, kind of tracked with the prime rate. So you could look at SOFR and add three points to it and get a feel for where prime was going the next time the Fed met. And, and let me, let's take a look at that. So if you go back and look at the prime rate in January of 2022, it was at 3.25%, a little over 3% higher than SOFR. By June, it was up to 4.5%, which is about 35 over SOFR. And today it's at 7.75%, SOFR's at 4.6%. You see the trend. So it's a valuable tool to take a look at if you're trying to get a feel for what's going on with interest rates. We are all aware that interest rates are have gone up quite a bit, as I just demonstrated. And that is having an effect on raising capital. The first effect is just the fact that private equity firms, they certainly get capital from wealthy individuals, from other, other groups, insurance companies, et cetera, but they also borrow money. And the cost of that money has gone way up. It makes it more difficult to get money to do deals. And therefore that's having an impact on the amount of deals that they are doing. The other thing that it's causing them a problem for is the fact that because they're paying more for their money, the fund returns are actually going down and they're not meeting the benchmarks that were set for them on certain deals. So that's having an impact on newer deals. The other thing that's causing a problem here is that private equity firms are starting to have real concerns about not only the companies they have in their current portfolio, but companies they're bringing into their portfolio. And that's because interest rates are causing the net income of these companies to go down. These companies are having issues and they have concerns. So they're being more cautious than they were even a year ago. The last thing is that because these companies are no longer as profitable as they once were, it is not only affecting the multiples, but it's also affecting uh, the net income and the EBITDA and therefore reducing the amount that they are getting on the return. So again, private equity firms are being more careful. They're really looking at businesses that are uh, recession-proof and highly profitable. I mentioned we're living in a fluctuating marketplace. Companies are still reeling from COVID. And I'll, I'll give you an example. I had a client of mine who was uh, in the construction business. They made a product for the construction business. And they were having a very difficult time getting supplies. They were having a supply chain issue. And this was caused by COVID. And it's still going on. What happened to them was they couldn't get supplies to make the product. They couldn't live up to the contracts they had signed. And they started getting sued by their customers. This eventually caused the company to shut down. They ultimately had to liquidate and just get out of the business. This was a company that before COVID was very profitable. So 
COVID's still having an impact, not as much as it did before, but it's still affecting companies. The next big thing that's happening in the marketplace is that companies who have bank lines are starting to bust their covenants. In particular, the covenant that they're starting to bust is the debt service ratio covenant. And I'll briefly tell you how that works. If you've got a company that their debt service is $100,000 per quarter, and let's say their covenant with the bank is 1.2 to 1, that means that if you've got $100,000 in debt service, your EBITDA needs to be $120,000. Well, you've got a company that's living up to that covenant, and they see their interest rate go up 3 or 4% in six months. Well, now that $100,000 in debt service bumps up to $110,000, and they are no longer in compliance. And they're uh, technically, they're in default. And we're seeing more, more companies go into default which is creating a problem for these companies and putting them in distress, which the bad news is, is that companies are, some companies are in trouble. The good news is, is that this creates opportunity if you're in an acquisition mode. The other thing that's causing uh, companies to come into the marketplace for sale is fears of a recession. Uh, we have business owners who were planning to exit in a year or two and are looking at the possibility of a recession coming on and they're saying to themselves, hey, maybe I wanna get out before the recession hits and they're entering the marketplace. The last thing that's happening is that we're seeing a shift in where acquisitions are happening. Uh, it used to be more so up North. Now we're seeing it in Southern states, Georgia, Texas, Florida, North Carolina. And the reason for this is the fact that these states are easier to do business in. The other thing that's driving that is that these states have a lower cost of labor. Most of these states do not have higher minimum wage requirements, and therefore labor costs are lower, making them more attractive. On a side note, uh, we're actually seeing more activity from foreign investors coming in to acquire companies in the United States particularly companies from the Middle East. The last thing I want to talk about is uh, uncertainty with the Fed. We can all agree that inflation has been kind of a buzzword for quite a while now. Uh, there are periods when we think inflation is under control, and then we realize that it's not. In the fourth quarter of last year, the Fed started talking about the fact that they thought inflation was under control, which started people speculating that we were going to see a slowdown in interest rate hikes and perhaps even a reversal where we started seeing interest rates come down. Well, on February the 9th, a Fed governor named Christopher Waller gave a speech to the Agribusiness Conference. And in that speech, he talked about the fact that inflation is not under control. All indicators point to additional inflation in 2023, and that we can expect interest rate hikes throughout 2023 and probably more significant than you would estimate. So that's got the markets a little nervous, uh, justifiably so. So I want to shift gears here and now talk about things to do before you try to acquire a company. And the first thing 
uh, that I would recommend. And let me tell you where I'm coming from before I take a recommendation here. I was uh, on the acquisition team at a company called Service Corporation International, uh, one of the largest funeral home holding companies in the world. Uh, I was there for five years, did several acquisitions. Uh, I've been the CFO of a couple of different companies, have done acquisitions with those companies, and I have been a lender for the last 21 years and helped fund several acquisitions. On top of that, I spend a lot of time talking to other lenders like myself, uh, to SBA lenders, to traditional bank lenders, to angel investors, and I've, I always ask for their input about, hey, what, do you, what are companies doing wrong? What are companies doing right when they do acquisitions? So the thing to do before you try to acquire a company is to put together a plan. Most of the time when I see an acquisition, the company that's acquired, that's doing the acquisition has stumbled across an opportunity. They weren't necessarily looking to do an acquisition, but this deal looks good. And they kind of shift and go into acquisition mode. What I'm suggesting to you is that you should be in acquisition mode before you look at these opportunities. You should look at what kind of businesses you want to bring on. Do you want to bring on a company that's going to just increase your current customer base? Or are you looking to diversify your portfolio? I would suggest to any company, once they're past the startup mode, once they're making money, they should look at making a decision on whether or not they want to grow the company by doing acquisitions. And if so, put yourself in acquisition mode then. Part of that is putting together the right deal team. Do you have the proper management in place? Do you have the advisors that you need? You know, do you need to bring on uh, a CPA firm to help you with the acquisition? Or do you need to hire a fractional CFO? You should be looking at that now, interviewing people now, uh, and getting those people teed up for when that opportunity presents itself. Next thing you want to do is identify what kind of funding source you want. Do you want to bring on more equity? Or do you want to bring on debt to do the acquisition? Make that decision now. Start preparing for that so that when you do the acquisition, you're ready. After you've gone through that process, you're ready to, to look at acquisition opportunities. You can either wait for one to present itself or you can hire a broker to help you do that. Once you identify the acquisition target, there's more work to be done. The first thing you need to do is you need to analyze the cash flow after the acquisition. In other words, take your financial statements, take the financial statements of the company you are acquiring, consolidate them, do your eliminations, get rid of expenses that are going away, Look at the synergies. Am I going to have more buying power? Can I reduce my cost of goods sold? Put all that together and put together a pro forma going forward. Then take that pro forma and roll it into your cash flow. You really want to look at this acquisition to make certain that it's going to improve your cash flow, not hinder it. Most companies that fail, fail because they have cash flow problems. So you certainly don't want to acquire a company that's going to hurt your future outlook, you want to acquire a company that's going to enhance it. 
The next thing you want to look at is, is this a business that you're going to enjoy running? Uh, I talk to companies all the time that are doing acquisitions. They're successful companies. Management uh, has got the companies almost on autopilot. They're working eight to five and they're not working on the weekends. They acquire a company and that company does require much more uh, of their time and effort. Uh, they find themselves working much longer days, working weekends, and they don't like it. So analyze all of that as you start your due diligence. Maybe this is not a business you're going to enjoy running. And if you're not, maybe you don't want to do it. The next thing you want to look at is your own management team. Do they have the skill set to bring on this acquisition? And can they manage the combined companies once it's uh, once the acquisition is complete? You also want to understand not only your management team, but your employees uh, and understand the employees of the other company. This is relevant, particularly in today's workforce. There are companies out there that have a majority of their employees who work from home. Well, maybe your philosophy is you don't agree with that. And so that when you acquire this new company, you are going to force those employees to start coming back into the office. Well, what's going to be the impact of that? Are you going to lose a bunch of employees because they don't want to do that? The other thing you want to take a look at is the vendors for this company you're acquiring. Are they uh, happy with the current company? Have they been treated well? Payments are all up to date. Or are they behind with all their vendors? The vendors are hostile and you're going to be dealing with that day one. Next thing you want to do is make sure you have the right integration plan in place. Get with management, understand how we're going to bring everything in, uh, not only from an IT standpoint, which is usually what people focus on first, but even things like tax reporting. Are you going to be able to get integrate their tax reporting with your tax reporting in a quick manner so that you don't fall behind on any you know, regulatory compliance or anything else? And last but not least, do you have the uh, right people in place? And what I mean by that is, are your employees excited about this acquisition and willing to step up if you know they lose employees during the acquisition and they have to take on an additional load? Next, I wanna talk about getting ready for funding. The first thing you want to do is analyze how much debt the business can service. So if you're looking at the cash flow from these two companies and uh, you know the, the EBITDA or cash flow is 100,000, you can probably service 70 to 80 grand for that same period. Then you kind of look at that and the different funding sources you've got to determine how much uh, you can borrow. Next you want to do next thing you want to do, is do a stress test on the business. Take that same cash flow and increase your interest rate by three or 4% over the next year. How does the business look then? How does your cash flow look then? Do the same thing with revenue. Assume that you may lose 10 or 15% of the revenue from the acquired company because customers just leave. Uh, what does that do to the business? What does that do to cash flow? You want to run these tests really during your due diligence process because I can assure you, if you go to the bank or you go to an SBA lender, they're going to be running these stress tests. 
The next thing you want to do before you even talk to the bank is you want to make sure that all your accounting is up to date. All your payables are entered, all your invoices are entered, and that your financial statements are current. I, I tell people this all the time. Uh, when I find a new prospect and I'm talking to them, we, we execute a non-disclosure agreement, I send them a data request, which usually includes, you know, last year's financials, their most current financials for this year, perhaps an accounts receivable aging. <clears throat> and then I wait to see when they send it to me. And if it takes four, five, six weeks for me to get that information and I've got to ask for it two or three times, there's one of two things going on here. Either the prospect really isn't that interested in a funding opportunity or they don't have the information readily available. On the other hand, if I send out the data request and I get uh, the information back the next day, that prospect moves to the top of my work list because A, he's motivated, and B, he's got his act together. So make sure that you have those financial statements uh, all up to date. Next thing, understand uh, the bank's requirements. You know, if you're doing a bank loan or an SBA loan, what are the requirements? And I don't mean <clears throat> like what are they going to require you to do per se. What are they going to require from uh, the standpoint of bonuses? Are they going to allow you to issue them? Uh, dividends. Again, are you allowed to issue them? Uh, what other restrictions are they going to put on you? Are they going to allow you to take on other debt? Those are all things you should know before uh, you get too far down the road. Uh, the last thing I want to talk about here is insurance. It's going to be important that you have the proper insurance in place, uh, but it's also going to be important that the loss payee on those insurance policies are transferable, particularly if you get a bank loan. They're going to want to be named as the loss payee. So it's important to understand your insurance as you're getting ready to be funded. Okay, let's shift gears again and talk about funding sources for these acquisitions. And I'm really gonna focus in on three different kinds, uh, equity, banks, and alternative lenders. When we talk about equity, the first one, the first type I'd like to talk about are friends and family. And I know that sounds unusual. Most people don't view friends and family as an equity source. Um, but I do. And I will tell you, most people go to friends and family for money when they're in startup mode. Makes sense. You've got an idea. Uh, these people trust you. They know you're a hard worker. They know you're going to make you're going to do everything in your power to make this a success. So they're the right people to go talk to. I would argue that this is actually a better time. You now have a business that is successful. And you're looking to bring on an acquisition that's going to make it even more successful. And the reason that I like going to friends and family in this situation, if it works, is because you can be more flexible with them. Uh, and I'll give you an example. Uh, I had a deal a while back that uh, this company brought in some money from their uh, wealthy friends and family, and they ended up giving up 40% of the company for a million dollars. The catch was that if over the next five years, the company was able to repay that million dollars 
with a 10% annual return, that equity went from 40% to 10%. And that happened. And it was a good deal for everybody. Those investors got all of their money back with a 10% return, plus kept 10% equity in the company. The co it was good for the original owners because they ended up getting the acquisition done and they only had to give up 10% of the company to do it. So I like this source. Uh, you can be creative here. Uh, doesn't always work, but something to consider. The next group I'll talk about are angel investors. And angel investors uh, used to be, a, you know, it was a wealthy individual that liked your business model or liked you or liked the industry because he used to be in it or she used to be in it. And uh, they would invest. Nowadays, it's a little more complicated. You really see groups of angel investors that invest. They'll they'll pull their money together, and instead of one guy investing, you know, in one or two companies with his million dollars, they'll spread it out and they'll each take a piece of a deal. And so, uh, a wealthy individual may invest in in different companies, but smaller chunks. Uh, those these investors got hurt in 2022, uh, and therefore a little more cautious than they have been in the past. Again, looking for successful companies, successful management, recession-proof businesses. Uh, we've already talked about private equity quite a bit. I will tell you that the biggest difference between private equity and angel investors is that private equity, private equity is going to look for the bigger deals. You know, $5 million and up. Angel investors they're typically going to be somewhere between 250,000 and 2 million. Well, what if you don't want to give up equity? The next logical choice to look at would probably be the banks. And uh, there are two really good sources to go to at the banks. The banks today, traditional banks, Wells Fargo, Bank of America, et cetera, they are doing lines of credits and fixed-term loans. Uh, they are looking for bigger deals. I know the banks that I talk to, they like to see companies that have three to $4 million in EBITDA, 30, 40, $50 million in revenue, uh, and they're looking to borrow more than $5 million. And what you'll find with most banks is that they have a traditional lending division, and they also have an SBA group. And if a company doesn't make their qualifications for fixed term loans or lines of credits, they're going to push them into their SBA group. There's nothing wrong with that. SBA has several different loan programs, but the one that works best for acquisitions is the SBA 7A loan. Those loans are typically being done between $250,000 and $5 million. These are great uh, for acquisitions and they're used often. Um, there's some really good things about these loans. Uh, the one thing that's happened with these loans is that they have moved from kind of a fixed rate to a prime plus rate. Uh, I don't, as a matter of fact, the SBA lenders that I talk to, none of them are doing fixed rate loans right now. They're all prime plus. So what that means is a year and a half ago, you could get a SBA fixed rate loan for 6%. Now, it's prime plus three or four, which could mean, you know, 10 and a half, 11 and a half percent loans. So that is, that is a definite change. 
essentially double the cost. The other thing that we're seeing happening is that the SBA requires a 10% uh, investment by the owners of a company, but we're seeing the banks that do SBA loans actually look to increase that amount. And we're seeing deals that are requiring 15%. I've even seen one that required a 20% investment. So banks are obviously taking less risk than they were, uh, and they're looking for you to, to shoulder more of that risk. Which brings us back to the whole concept that cash is king, and in today's society, even more so. So what happens if you don't, you don't want to bring on equity uh, and you want to do it in debt, but banks don't work for you and the SBA doesn't work for you for a number of reasons. Um, let's say it's because you don't want to give a personal guarantee or you don't make certain requirements or the amount that they can lend you, particularly the SBA, given their requirements, doesn't, doesn't get the acquisition done. What else can you possibly do to uh, bring in the funding necessary to do the acquisitions? Well, you can talk to alternative lenders. And I'm going to go through some of them, but certainly not all of them. And I'm going to start off with an unusual again. I'm going to talk about PO financing. PO financing is a great way to improve the cash. PO financing works if you are selling or buying a product and reselling it. It does not work if all your if you're a service business. So very briefly, how that works is, let's say you or the company you're acquiring uh, is doing business with Walmart, and Walmart issues you a PO. Let's say it's for a hundred thousand dollars. And your cost of goods to complete that PO is 50%. Well, you can go to a PO financer and he'll lend you that 50%, uh, which immediately improves your cash flow because you're not having to come out of pocket to buy that inventory. When that product comes in, you do what you need to do with it. You ship it out and invoice Walmart. That PO financer is going to want to be taken out either by your bank or by a factor or by you in cash, because uh, they typically don't want to finance the receivable. This product uh, is very risky because they're dependent on you to get the product in, do what you need to do, ship it out and invoice it. Uh, if you don't do that, they have a problem collecting. Because of that, PO financing is a little more expensive. I usually see deals anywhere between two and a half and 4%. Uh, Having said that, it really helps companies improve their cash flow and it helps make them scalable because a lot of times they can't do deals because they don't have the cash flow necessary to buy the inventory. With PO financing, that can be taken care of. The next group I want to talk about, and I'll tell you in a minute why I'm talking about these two first, is factoring. Factoring is a great tool even for startups. Uh, and certainly for acquisitions, because you're just they're just buying the receivable and advancing you against it. So the way that works is, again, we've got this $100,000 invoice. The factor will come in and he will uh, purchase that invoice for $98,000. But he won't give you the whole $98,000 up front. And that, that number could be ninety-eight five, dollars and it could be uh, $99,000. 
It just depends on the deal and how long the money's going to be out. But typically one to two to three percent discount. They're going to advance you a certain percentage of that invoice and they're going to hold the rest in reserve. So let's say it's a hundred thousand dollar invoice. They advance you eighty five thousand. Uh, that invoice then uh, and you get that money right away as soon as that invoice is sent out. 30 days later, that invoice gets paid. They're going to collect the hundred thousand. They're going to pay themselves back the money they advance you, and they're going to send the balance to you less their discount fee, which, like I said, is you know a thousand, fifteen hundred, two thousand dollars. Reason I talk about these two first is because not only do they vastly improve your cash flow, other banks and particularly SBA lenders are willing to work with these types of lenders because they're really trading an asset for an asset. They're not really lending you money. Uh, so you can enter into a intercreditor agreement with the SBA and they'll allow you to factor your invoices and give that factor the security he needs while not impacting your SBA loan. Because you can do that, it increases the amount of money that you can have available to you to do an acquisition. So when we talk about alternative lenders, these two could actually be used with an SBA loan or a traditional bank line. The next group I want to talk about are asset-based lenders. And these guys are very similar to banks. Uh, they are going to lend you money uh, based on the collateral you have in the company. Uh, they're going to look at your cash flow, but not as much. Um, and they are going to let you use this money to do an acquisition. Asset-based lenders are different from a bank in the sense that they're more entrepreneurial driven. And because of that, they're going to be more focused on where you are today than where the business has been for the last two or three years. And they're going to be focused on where you're going. But most importantly, they're going to be focused in on your assets. Uh, and I usually, another name for asset-based lenders are borrowing-based lenders. They're going to take a look at your receivables, your inventory, your equipment, uh, perhaps even your real estate, they're going to put together a borrowing base. And let's say that borrowing base is, you know, they deem that those assets are worth 1.2 million. They may lend you a million dollars on that 1.2 million. And at that point, a lot of times it works like a line of credit. You can borrow as little or as much as you want up to that limit. And that limit can increase, particularly if you're a growing business and your inventory and accounts receivable are growing, you can also increase the line on your asset-based loan. Very good tool for acquisitions. I've seen it used multiple times to do acquisitions. It's easier to qualify for. It's quicker to qualify for. And the covenants are typically lighter than what you'll see with a bank. The next lender I want to talk about are mezzanine lenders. And mezzanine lenders, again, are very useful in acquisitions. These guys, by definition, are subordinate to the bank or the SBA or a factor or uh, any, any other lender that we'll talk about. They come in behind them uh, and they'll do so if the company's cash flow allows for it. Uh, and what they'll do is they'll come in as a second position loan, give you more cash available to do the acquisition or what other needs you have in the business. Uh, again, it's riskier because they're behind 
the other lender. So it's a little bit more expensive. But having said that, it's a very valuable tool. Uh, mezzanine lenders sometimes are called quasi-equity. And the reason for that is these guys are looking for you know high returns, mid-teens, maybe, maybe as high as 20%. But a lot of times they are willing to take a portion of that in the form of equities, uh, I'm sorry, of warrants or some other equity instrument uh, at a future date. And because of that, they'll uh, uh, take less in interest payments and that helps the cash flow of the company. So very useful tool uh, to be stacked on top of another lender. The next group I wanna talk about are Merchant Cash Advance. Uh, these guys I do not recommend as a viable source for doing acquisitions. And the reason that is, is because they are so expensive. Um, what these guys do is they will lend money based on future cash receipts. So they take a look at your deposits and say, okay, the guy's making, bringing in a hundred thousand a month, uh, in cash, you know, we're going to lend him, you know, $90,000 based on that. Uh, and then you pay it back over a certain period of time. Uh, it is expensive. Uh, I've seen deals anywhere in the high 30s to as high as 100%. So I don't recommend them. However, there are instances where they can make sense. And I'll give you an example. Uh, let's say you've got an acquisition that's you know, $250,000. has to be closed on quickly. And by doing this acquisition, you'll drop you know, $30,000 a month in EBITDA to your bottom line. And uh, that's because of the synergies or the eliminations that you have. Well, you look at that and go, okay, if I pay, if I borrow this money from a merchant cash advance guy, you know, I borrow 250,000, I pay him an extra 75,000 in uh, interest. That's a lot of money. However, I'm making 30 grand a month the payback is less than 10 months, you know, maybe that makes sense. That's the only time I would recommend using them. And I would only recommend using them if you need to close quickly, because the good news with these guys is they can usually close in a week to 10 days. So uh, that's a viable source if you've got an, an extenuating circumstance. Last group I want to talk about are seller notes. Uh, seller notes, may not be considered an alternative lender, but they're becoming more and more prevalent in this day and age. Uh, what we're seeing is owners that are a little bit distressed, they need to get, get the deal done, they will take on a seller note. Banks, and particularly SBA lenders, really like seller notes if they're structured properly. And what I mean by that is, are they interest only? If they're interest only and they're not going to affect your debt service too much, the banks like them. Or if they're what we call a stand still agreement, uh, banks love these. And the reason being is because these agreements uh, have, you know, let's say it's a five-year note. There are no principal or interest payments for five years. And at the end of five years, then uh, all the principal and interest comes due. The reason that that is attractive to the banks is they feel within five years, you'll be able to refinance uh, and get that done. Or, uh, and on top of that, is the fact that they view that as equity. If there's no debt service, it's not impacting, impacting 
your debt service ratio, it's acting like equity. Uh, I will say that they are going to require that seller note to be deeply subordinate to them and probably require that that seller note does not have a lien attached to it. And that's the uh, final on my alternative lenders. And that will wrap us up for today.